inside is Pharo looking for two. Doncaster straight. Can he do it again? Light up the world is getting up near the fence. But Pharo, Pharo dashed to the lead from Abbe Glenn and light up the world followed by Aragen and Brave Warrior. But Gavin Eads goes for home on Pharo. Look at Auntie Mary. Auntie Mary out of the back. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Racing New South Wales and the Gosford Race Club got together to pay tribute to retiring trainer Albert Stapleford with a farewell luncheon at the Gosford meeting on June 22nd. The remarkable horseman turned 93 in May and relinquished his licence a few weeks later. Despite hearing and vision difficulties, Albert has been supervising the training of two horses in recent times and one of those horses, a mare called Dissenter, gave the veteran his 500th career training win early this year and then won again a week later. His first win as a trainer came with his very first runner. It was Renmark in a Musselbrook maiden in 1947. Who would have dreamed he'd still be training winners 76 years later? With never more than 20 horses in work, Albert has maintained a healthy strike rate and has rarely been without a good horse. His all-time favourite was Magic Albert, who won seven from 13, including a Group 2 and a Group 3, and others to win multiple races were Maitland Gold, Pecklin, Auntie Betty, Myella Prince, and Hasta La Quista. Perhaps he'll be best remembered for the huge betting plunge he engineered with Rutherford at Rose Hill in 1974. The chestnut opened at 330 to 1, and those in the know had a massive result on and off course. It was no surprise when Albert changed the name of his gospel stables to Rutherford Lodge. Albert Stapleford, quietly spoken, polite and courteous, a friend to many and a master of his trade. His advice will be sought by young trainers for a long time yet. There are few Australian trainers who've had a more diversified background with horses than Greg Urell. The former Olympic show jumping competitor ran a very busy horse-breaking operation in Melbourne from the mid-1980s to the early 90s, and at one stage he was breaking in 80 yearlings per season for some very high-profile trainers. In the early 90s, he started to dabble with the training of a handful of gallopers, and it wasn't long before he bit the bullet and decided to give professional horse training a serious shot. Greg was fortunate enough to get his hands on a very smart mare called Princess Dora early in proceedings and was adventurous enough to bring her to Sydney for the prestigious Surround Stakes. It was then a Group 2, it is now a very important Group 1. Princess Dora won the Surround at Warwick Farm and Greg Urell had announced his presence. It's now history that the gifted horseman would go on to win eight Group 1s with the champion sprinter Apache Cat and a WS Cox Plate with Pinker Pinker. He is now firmly ensconced among Melbourne's best trainers with a team of 60 horses in work at the bustling Cranbourne Training Centre. This is a long overdue chat with a master horseman in Greg Urell. Greg, lovely to catch up. Thanks for your time. Always welcome, John. You're one of many trainers at the Cranbourne Training Precinct where things are a lot busier than they were two years ago. Now, when Caulfield closed as a training centre, the horse numbers at Cranbourne exploded. 
Absolutely. It, um, you know, from uh, from when we first started off at uh, Cranman and uh, and you you would have said it was probably a little quiet uh, on the uh, just on the outskirts of the, the metropolitan little uh, racetrack there and few mm. trainers trained there and then uh, and then to where it is now it's uh, completely you know different dynamic but uh, very big setup and um, you know a very very busy center and uh, and a very good one it's uh, it's a tremendous center there's no doubt about that it must be like an ant's nest uh, during the morning peak with horses everywhere does it ever feel overcrowded or does it run smoothly well, it was interesting, John. When we uh, first uh, were introduced to the fact that you know a lot of the Caulfield trainers were coming out there, we uh, we immediately thought that, that you know we were probably going to be overrun, and you know things were going to be sort of ended up like Pitt Street and horses everywhere. And but look, interestingly enough, it's 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 been a very very good blend, and um, you know the whole system works very well. The uh, the team there at the uh, training centre. Um, you know, they work feverishly to prepare the tracks daily to have them right, you know, for the next day. And and it does work. You know I mean, that, um, and we're fortunate that there's a lot of tracks there that uh, we can diversify and, uh, you know, and be able to sort of dilute the numbers and sort of spread it out evenly so it does work. Yeah. You've got the use of three grass tracks. I think one's for winter use only, isn't it? Well, yes, it, uh, it specifically was sort of designed for that purpose to try and bolster, you know, uh, a lot of the workload that uh, was going to come its way. And, uh, and it's been terrific, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's no easy job. And, of course, the, uh, the climate in Melbourne isn't favourable by any means in, in grass tracks. So, uh, mm. you know, the team there do a tremendous job to get them, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as prepared and as well as they can day by day and, and get us through the winter and, um, you know, and, and help all of those horses prepare for the spring. Mm. You've got two sand tracks, you've got a poly track and hurdles are available to give the horses a variation in routine. You'd be one bloke who'd see the benefit in that. <laughs> Absolutely. It, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's great to have that little bit of, uh, you know, difference in the training program for these horses and, uh, and how much they enjoy it. And it's, uh, and certainly from my perspective, sort of looking at some of these horses and knowing when, you know, we, uh, started off in show jumping and, uh, a lot of the show jumping horses I had were X-race horses and, uh, and just seeing how adapt they were to sort of, uh, and being nimble to, you know, to jump over the jumps. But uh, like uh, all different sports, there's a lot of naturals and uh, and there's a heck of a lot of unnaturals too. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. You've got a bank of starting gates there, uh, Greg, for the education of young horses. We have, John. Um, you know, the, uh, the actual, uh, you know, education barriers we've got there for them are brilliant. Um, that gives the young horses all the confidence in the world and teaches them, you know, the right way. And um, the track's been very, very well designed, um, you know, and it's it's certainly grown and grown over the years that we've been there. But uh, uh, And there's always modifications. I mean, the um, you know, we have many meetings with the club and, uh, you know, the sort of different ideas that are brought up, you know, from the trainers or jockeys and, you know, the track riders and, one good thing about the club, they're very, very prepared to listen and uh, and work with us as best we can, and uh, and I think that just shows in the results. And the trainers meet the track committee frequently. We do, John. Yes, it's uh, 
it's a big must. Um, they're very, very uh, focused on that and uh, and trying to meet our needs. And uh, and I mean, it's it, it's no secret, you know, it, um, the club it, it's promoted as the best training facility, public training facility in Australia, and I have no doubt that it it, it would be number one. Mm. You've had an assistant trainer for about eight years now, and it's none other than Caulfield Cup winning trainer Jim Mason. And you tell me it's been a very workable partnership. It's been really good, John. Um, you know, like a lot of these things that, um, you know, when Jim first uh, approached me about the job, um, I must say I was a little bit apprehensive and uh, only in the sense not doubting his ability, but probably the ability that, um, you know, he was very successful in what he did. Um, and we really didn't want to clash heads with, you know, our own ideas and mm. Um, but, uh, look, I must say that things have sort of blended very well. Uh, he's a great asset to the team. He's a very, very knowledgeable horseman and, uh, and it works well. And, you know, the, uh, the time factor is, uh, and it's interesting. I mean, we had, I think, uh, you know, a lot of Caulfield trainers that knew Jim, uh, said, oh, look, you know, it, uh, it, it, we, we can't believe that this partnership has, uh, lasted so long. Yeah. But it has, and then, then you know, why I, I I don't really know. We we get along well. Um, you know, he's uh, as I said, he's a very accomplished horseman and very skilled, and you know, he's got a great eye for detail, and um, you know, and hand in hand, and I respect that, you know, greatly, and uh, and it just works. And uh, you know, look, we we get together every morning after the morning's work. We sit down in the office. We've got our list, and we just go through the horses and discuss different things and, you know, that have developed during the day or, you know, when they've raced or the morning's work or the vets and, uh, yeah. and we, you know, and, and, and it just works. It's just a system that works for both of us and uh, I'm sure he's happy and I'm very happy. Many trainers all around Australia rue the shortage of work riders. How quickly can you get 60 horses worked? <laughs> well... <laughs> If uh, if they all turn up, it uh, it does help. But um, but certainly, as we know, it uh, it doesn't always work that way. But look, we we actually start uh, our first horses walk out at five o'clock every morning. Um, rain, hail, or shine—that's the way the system works. Mm. And then we just keep rotating through. Uh, you know, each uh, each sector as we do, meaning you know, they, they keep going out in lots and uh, and usually have five or six that go out at a time and then uh, and then pretty much calculates to about a 20-minute interval. Uh, so uh, with them out, the new lot come in off the walker, get saddled up and mm. uh, riders come in and uh, jump off and jump on the next one and, and go through. So yeah. it, it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a well-oiled machine, so to speak. Um, mm. you know, but to answer your question, you know, we're, we're still, and with the help of a treadmill there, um, you know, we, we're finding that it probably takes us through to about 8.30, sort of 9 o'clock every morning to, to sort yeah. of work 60 horses comfortably. So you're back in the office by 9 o'clock with a big cup of coffee. <laughs> exactly, and look forward to it. You're blessed to have the services of a star work writer in your wife, Danielle, who's one of the first to clock in six mornings a week. She usually rides six or seven horses. You're very spoiled. I am. You're uh, 100%, John. It's uh, very, very fortunate to have her and, uh, and been a tremendous asset 
you know, through the years and uh, and ridden all my Group One horses and uh, and the feedback and her expertise and knowledge uh, has played a tremendous part in in their success and uh, and overall success in the stable. But uh, um, and uh, and the best part about it, I, I know if she's trying to pull a sickie on me. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you sure do, yeah. <laughs> so that one doesn't really work. So. Uh, but look, it works well. Um, I mean, we're up at four every morning, and uh, uh, becomes a very long day for Danielle. She's uh, she's very dedicated. She she loves riding, and uh, and uh, as you know, yes, she started off um, as an apprentice. Yeah, and, she uh, rode under the name of Danielle Ellett. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And she yeah. rode some winners. She did. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. She uh, yeah, very very competitive nature and. Uh, out there and uh, and was strong, you know. She um, she could really uh, you know punch one out to the line and uh, yeah, she'd uh, she'd give it all tooth and nail to the finish. That's for sure. I think she was apprenticed at Pakenham, wasn't she? She was, John. Yes, mm. I think uh, to Lee Bennewith out there at the time. So um, yeah, yes, well, but no, very very fortunate to have her. She's a, an absolute marvel. After track work, Monday to Friday. She rushes off to a day job in a very interesting industry. It's uh, it, it's quite diverse, isn't it? To think that <laughs> um, you know you'd uh, you'd ride horses in the morning and then uh, and end up uh, working at the uh, the Melbourne Institute of Plastic Surgery during the day. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, as a dermal clinician there, and sort of and works with all the sort of the pre and post operative. Uh, patients there and uh, tends their needs and uh, it's a very very busy um, business there and uh, uh, but she loves it she's absolutely dedicated to it and uh, enjoys it but uh, I must say she uh, she does come home exhausted yeah what a worker mm. yeah so I, uh, I wish I could uh, yes, uh, give a few blood transplants from her to a few others and, <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> you and the team work very hard at finding the right races for your horses. Although you don't seem to stray too far from town, you race quite often at Cranbourne, you're often at Pakenham, Bendigo, Geelong, Ballarat. Greg, it doesn't matter where you go, it's hard to win. It is, John. I mean, um, Melbourne's very, very competitive. Um, there's a lot of good trainers, there's a lot of good horses. And uh, and you really have to do your due diligence to uh, to try and get it right on the day. And I, I think that's probably why it becomes so rewarding just to win a race, um, because it's it's tough going. And uh, but that's the thrill of it. It um, you know it, it, nothing is handed to you, and uh, you know you do win a race. You you know you truly believe you you've deserved it and uh, worked hard to just to achieve that result. But uh, you know, it is a very, very competitive uh, state, uh, Victoria, and as many race meetings as there is, it doesn't matter where you go, you can always run into a, you know, a better horse. Uh-huh. Our listeners will be anxious to hear about a certain glamour horse you trained a few years ago, but we'll work up to him. Greg, for now, I'd like to trace your amazing life with horses, which began in Pony Club at Kenthurst in Sydney's Hills District. You were riding from the time you could walk. Yes, it, um, it was always, 
just in my blood, uh, horses. It, uh, it's quite interesting here. You know, uh, um, you know with uh, uh, mum and dad and uh, dad being a plumber and uh, had good business going and uh, but uh, and we live sort of in suburbia, but the attraction to the horses just you know just never left me. It uh, it just didn't matter where we went or you know if they had a weekend up on the uh, the Catai River there and uh, skiing there and there was pony rides. Uh, they all went one direction to the water and I I went straight to the ponies and um, <laughs> and, and hung around them and then. Dad, he uh, he saw how interested I was, and Dad loved horses himself, and uh, and come from a horse background, so mm. um, it was a very good outlet for him to sort of um, get a little bit involved with horses again. And uh, and as I said, once he saw my interest, well, uh, that just grew, and then of course, yeah, we uh, we had some riding lessons, and uh, mm. things just kept rolling along from there. Modesty will prevent your elaborating on the high standard you reached in the show jumping arena. But I'm going to highlight the fact that you competed in the USA and Europe with the Equestrian Federation team as a teenager. What an experience at that age. It was tremendous. Um, it really was. It, um, it's quite incredible to think that, um, you know, the opportunity was there and, what horses can do for you and uh, and open a lot of doors and take you to different places, but uh, it was fabulous. It, uh, it it was just so interesting. And again, you know, on the uh, on the international stage, very very competitive. And I mean, we toured uh, a lot here in Australia, and that was fantastic. And you know, you competed against some very very good riders here mm. um but gee over there uh, they were they were coming at you left right and center it's um and because you know you had the best of the best coming from each country so mm. you had you know three or four riders that were selected to uh, compete so uh when you lined up in a grand prix you, you know you you probably had about I don't know, 25, 30 horses, mm. and you had the world's best riders and horses that you're competing against. So, uh, mm. um, and it was very interesting. It, uh, you know, to be at a level we were here um, to go overseas, and you really had to jump up a level again to uh, to be competitive. And uh, it, it it really opened my eyes. It was uh, a fantastic experience in doing that. There's that that I had to you know, become better at the, you know, as a rider to be competitive, to, you know, to try and win against these international riders. And uh, mm. and I was fortunate I had a couple of very good horses and, uh, and they allowed that to happen. You suffered a massive disappointment in 1980. So well were you going at the time that you made the Australian team to go to the Moscow Olympics, but your excitement was short-lived. It was decided that the entire equestrian team would boycott Moscow as a protest against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan the previous year. What an awful letdown. It certainly was, John. It, uh, incredible. And, uh, you know, you work so hard to uh, get that opportunity to uh, to be selected and... Uh, and, you know, and, of course, that's over a four-year period. And 
I think I was 16 at the time when uh, the Olympics, I think they were in Toronto, and uh, I came home from school and uh, the show jungle was on and uh, stood there in the lounge room as I walked in the door and stood there with mum and, and we were watching it and um, and I said to mum, I said, I'm going to go to the Olympic Games one day. Did you? And, yeah. uh, and typical uh, mum, you know, they uh, – Put her arm around me. She said, "Oh, that'd be lovely, love, if you could." And uh, <laughs> and and you know, and it looked, you know, and then in four years' time, it was going to be a reality. It, uh, you know, we'd worked very, very hard. Mum and Dad were very supportive. Um, you know, you couldn't have asked for more. They were tremendous, and uh, and just to be selected and uh, and and hear your name. Um, rolled out as, uh, as as one of the uh, the riders t- to go and be selected, um, and then for that disappointing, you know, for it to be uh, boycotted, um, and a million things went through my mind. You know, will I have a horse good enough to go again in four years? You know, yes, yes. will I be riding well enough? You know, it's just it it was. The gap was so far apart, and uh, as we know, so many things can change in that period of time, and it was very, very disappointing, and uh, it was just one thing that I'd really set out to try and achieve, and and nearly got there, but, um, you know, as understandably, the circumstances didn't allow it, but uh, but luckily enough, we... um, we the horse that I did get selected with, he was still with me. He was mm. still going very, very well, mm. and we uh, were lucky enough to get another horse that joined the team mm. between that period. So I, I had two horses to sort of help me uh, to uh, to reach the heights again. Yeah, that's right. Four years later, in Los Angeles, and you were the only member of the team to take two horses to the games that year: Johnny Mac and Mister Shrimpton. And it's a good thing you took Mr. Shrimpton along. You needed him in the end. Well, we did, John. It, uh, you know, Johnny Mac had been uh, had been the main horse, so to speak, all the way through in Europe. We had uh, he'd been my main, uh, what they called a Nations Cup horse, and competed against all the uh, touring teams. That basically all these teams that were touring against were heading to the Olympic Games. So. That gave us a little bit of an insight as to what the competition was going to be like, and you know what your competitors were, and of course the horses. So, and Johnny Mac was my main horse, and uh, he'd gone through all these uh, what they call the Nations Cups, mm-hmm. done a super job. I think the uh, our last competition was at Hickstead yeah. in England, and. Uh, um, he uh, he was the only horse ever to jump on well, an Australian team at the time, a double clean round, mm. and uh, he was going super. And then, uh, you know, we ran third there, and uh, we were very, very buoyant, very proud of ourselves, thinking that, um, you know, we might have been just starting, you know, to sort of peak at the right time. And, uh, mm. and of course, yeah, we jumped on a plane and uh, headed across to Los Angeles and uh, and then even just in a very simple training session, um Johnny just misplaced his foot oh, dear. and mm. uh, just tried on a training pole and uh, and uh, strained a tendon. Right. So, so, so um, Mr. Shrimpton became your mount. He wasn't as good as Johnny Mack, but he fared well. He, uh, he certainly wasn't disgraced, was he? Not at all, John. No, it was a hard job for him and, um, you know, he just hadn't had the lead up that Johnny had you know, all the way through, but, mm. um, you know, he, he did a tremendous job. He, uh, it, it was a 
you know, a, a big moment in his life. I mean, uh, you know, there were enormous fences over there. and uh, But he was gallant. He um, he left the ground every time I asked him to, and he, he gave it his best shot. And he was a tremendous horse, but uh, probably mm. out of the two over a big Grand Prix, Johnny Mack was the one. Mm. Well, at the Sydney Royal in 1983, he, uh, he jumped six foot three or 190.5 centimetres. And in the very same year, Australia was one of 10 countries to compete in that very famous competition, the Dunhill Cup, staged in Sydney and Melbourne. And you tell me Johnny Mack was the only one of hundreds of horses that year in the Dunhill to jump six clear rounds. Correct. Yes, it... uh it was a big effort, it, um, you know, to uh, to be able to do that and to think that all of these countries and horses were out there. And uh, it was quite a unique event in the way it was staged in that the uh, everything was sort of all architecturally done and drawn out. The fences were all made identically throughout the world, heights, distances, weight of rails. Um, and it, it, it truly was a, a really good competition that we could – compete worldwide without having to leave Australia and knowing that, uh, you know, the fences were exactly the same. But exactly as you said, John, he was the only horse in the world to jump six clean rounds. So uh, yeah. it was a great effort. Yeah, really good. His Dunhill Cup win was achieved in Australia, but you had to go to Germany to collect the trophies. So you line up at the dais and you expect the presentation to be made by one of the officials but you were in for quite a shock. A very well-known gentleman presented you with that trophy and a gold watch. Yes, it uh, it was a highlight in my life to uh, to be a part of that. It um, it uh, as I said, it was the Dunhill International Trophy, and uh, uh, but at that point of time, Prince Philip um, was the uh, Equestrian uh, President International, and. Uh, he uh, he was the man who uh, presented the trophy, so it was uh, mm. it was a very honoured moment that um, you know to uh, head all the way over there and uh, be presented with the trophy with him, mm. and then uh, uh, and then we sat down and had lunch, so uh, which was just uh, you know mm. something I'll never ever forget. So uh, no. Dad flew with me; he uh, he came across. So uh, for the two of us, it. Uh, yeah, it was a very momentous occasion. Yeah, to dine with the Duke of Edinburgh is a legitimate brush with royalty and a moment <laughs> you've never forgotten. Uh, I don't know if you gave me this quote or whether I read it somewhere, but it's a beautiful quote about that wonderful show jumper Johnny Mack. You said, he was as sure-footed as a mountain goat and possessed a giant leap. He would coil up underneath as you approached an obstacle and it was on very rare occasions that he would so much as even brush a rail. You said he was the greatest show jumper you ever sat on. He certainly was. He was, uh, he was an absolute freak. He, um, it, uh, incredible to think of, uh, you know, the amount of horses that I rode, um, and you, you, the moment I first ever sat on his back, it, uh, it was just like you felt 
it was like a glove. It just worked. It fitted. Him and I just clicked. And uh, I trusted him. He trusted me. He trusted me in the sense that getting him in, into uh, the approach and in the, and trying to enable him to get into the correct takeoff point mm-hmm. to leave the ground and jump the fence correctly, mm-hmm. he, he certainly trusted me. And, and it didn't matter. Whatever I steered him into, he just left the ground. And... Uh, and he just absolutely hated to touch a fence, and um, Did he you know, really, it, it, it was oh. a it was a personal affront to him, was it? Exactly, mm. exactly. You know, he's very, very sensitive, and uh, and he just, you know, he's uh, he was his athleticism to leave the ground, and and he was a big horse too. He was a strong horse, but. Uh, he wasn't very long. He was compact, but mm. oh, gee, he had muscles on muscles, and yeah. he was. He was just like a coiled spring, and mm. the feeling he gave you—it's, it, it's, oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's just you, you can't describe it. It's, it's, mm. you know, you really have to uh, feel it. And uh, tremendous horse, but he was very, very sure-footed, and yeah. uh, you know, to uh, to get into a jump-off round against the clock and go quickly with him. Yeah. Oh, it was just like riding a motorbike. He was yeah. tremendous. Great yeah. thrill. Now, the mystery deepens regarding Johnny Mack when you consider this, Greg. He was by a thoroughbred out of a trotting mare, but amazingly he was a skewballed. Now, I've yes. known of skewball paces and trotters over the years, so it's pretty certain he got his colouring from his damn side. I think you're right. Mm. I think there's uh, a bit of background there that um, he's uh, he's been out of a coloured coloured mare there somewhere, and that uh, uh, it was unique. There was no doubt his colouring, and um, and just unique to think that the way he was bred, um, that he had the ability to jump. It um, you just wouldn't have. Uh, seen that combination working in in that field at all. Now, during the Johnny Mac era, you were a fully qualified plumber, having learned the trade from your dad, Laurie, who owned a very big plumbing business during your teen years, and he employed a lot of people. And the plumbing option was open to you when you got back from the LA Olympics. But by this time, you couldn't bear the thought of a future without horses. So what did you do? No, I was uh, I was uh, certainly sort of torn between two worlds, John. You know whether to uh, you know pursue uh, my career as a as a plumber and go on and uh, and try and stand up a business. I think I I uh, thought I'll give the horses a little rest for a bit and just see how I go. And I, I think I lasted 30 days, and, uh, <laughs> and that was it. Oh, yeah. And I, I just decided that uh, I've got to probably turn my hand to something else within the equestrian world. And mm. uh, as much as I love show jumping, the, uh, the, the, the travelling side of it uh, just got the better of me. I really would have liked to have uh, you know, not travelled. And, uh, of course, with that being the case, um, you know, the, uh, the thoroughbred, the racing industry was, uh, was the next – you know, Christian sport we turned to. Mm, so you acquired a property in Victoria and you became a horse breaker and we'll hear more about that, Greg, after this uh, this break coming up on our podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Back in a moment with Greg Urell. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? 
Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. Well, as word circulated that the ex-show-jumping bloke at Cranbourne was a very good horsebreaker, the business started to grow. In fact, you finished up with more than you needed in the end. Yes, it um, it's quite incredible how it uh, you know things just started from very very humble beginnings and uh, and the state of the business just grew and grew and uh, and I mean I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just wonderful to see these young horses coming through and uh, in the early stages and seeing what they'd develop into and uh, and uh, and there was certainly some challenging horses there amongst them and um, but. Uh, you know the uh, the the trainers that we worked for. Well, you know, it was just an array of the best of the best, and mm. uh, you know, to work with these animals that you know, and they they bought lovely horses, and uh, you know, it was great to work with all of them and uh, and see what they ended up you mm. know doing in their careers. But uh, but it was very busy, John. Yeah, we we had a lot of horses, and uh, and of course you uh, you wanted to make sure that. Uh, you know everything that you turned out uh, was as as good as a, a product as you could, and mm. uh, and you put your name to it, and uh, and we're very proud of what we did, and uh, and believe you know that uh, you know no matter what horse walked through the door, mm. um, we did our very best, you know, to uh, ensure it had a, a you know as good a career as it could have had with what we had to uh, yeah. Into it. Yes. Well, your talents as a breaker are best reflected in the names of the trainers who sent horses to you. As you said, some very high-profile names. Who were some of them? Well, we, um, you know, we broke in for Bart Cummings, uh, George Hanlon, uh, Lee Friedman, Jeff Murphy, uh, a lot of uh, Johnny Hawks. We did a lot of work for John mm. in the early stages when he first came across from Adelaide. Mm. Um just to name a few, it, um, you mm. know, and uh, and of course, you know, there were some lovely horses attached to those trainers, and um, it was incredible that uh, you know the stock you worked on and uh, mm. uh, the quality, and you see them coming from the yearling sales, and then uh, and roll in, then roll out, and mm. and it, it it's just as we know the uh, the industry is so busy, uh, and there'd be just so many sales on, and you know, I think one year we we turned over. 430 different uh, yearlings that we broke in, mm. and uh, at our peak, we we're doing 80 at a time. So Goodness it kept us <laughs> it yeah. kept us very very busy. And you sort of drifted into the training caper, didn't you, Greg? Uh, you found yourself sneaking into Cranbourne to gallop one or two of your own. It wasn't a a sudden transition. It it just played out gradually. 
Well, it did, John. It was interesting how it worked, and uh, and I was quite happy for it to sort of work that way because I was enjoying doing what we were doing, uh, and of course breaking in, and then leads to pre-training and and to work with a lot of those for those trainers. Um, and they'd have ideas that, uh, you know, what they would have liked to have done with their horses and uh, by the time they'd return to them. So um, there was a little bit of everything sort of happening, different styles, and, you know, you'd learn from a lot of these trainers what they liked, what they didn't like. And uh, so to ease into the training side of it, uh, it sort of blended quite uh, smoothly and it just helped as things went along and um, as it turned out to – educate these horses to the best of what these trainers wanted. Uh, we had to use the racetrack. To be able to use the racetrack, we needed a licence. And, uh, mm. and of course, to keep your licence going, you had to have runners. So it sort of all worked hand in hand in the end. And uh, mm. and then, uh, and then yeah, certainly the, the more that uh, we started to get involved with the racing, mm. um, the, the team just gradually started to build. Mm. Greg, we've been uh, yakking away here for longer than I thought. We'd better put on some speed because a lot I want to ask you about. <laughs> Your first winner was a horse called Some Habit in a 2,000-metre maiden at Colac. And then you chugged along for a few years, winning races with ordinary horses in the main. But the tide turned when you got your hands on a mare called Princess Door and you were brave enough to bring it to Sydney for the Group 2 surround stakes at Warwick Farm. I can remember calling that race as though it were yesterday, principally because of your spectacular colours and colours that you still use. Red and white striped jacket with a red and white striped cap. They really stand out. Yes, they uh, they do. It, uh, it was one of the most interesting things when, uh, when I rang Dad and said, uh, I've got my trainer's licence. And the first thing he said, make sure you get some colours I can see. Cause, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was uh, that was the, the foremost thought on my mind. That, uh, and uh, for Dad, it, it worked well. He could see them no matter where he was. He'd pull up and uh, as he was doing his plumbing rounds and uh, yeah. run into a TAB and have a look on the screen and watch the horses run around. Yeah, it was also of great assistance to race callers too, Greg in Victoria and New South Wales, I can tell you. Now, <laughs> having had a champion skewball show jumper probably helped prepare you for the first time you ever saw Apache Cat, who was bred at the Chatswood Stud near Seymour. He was foaled in 2002. Can you recall your initial thought when you first clapped eyes on Apache Cat? Yes, I can remember exactly. He, uh, he, uh, he, the uh, float company turned up in the afternoon. It was sort of, oh, gee, during the middle of winter. And um, driver just, he pulled the petition back and I just saw this filthy, muddy, chestnut, white horse that I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I, I didn't think he was for us. I, I thought there was... <laughs> There was another horse behind him that he was going to get. This horse yeah. wasn't for us. And uh, he said, oh, this is the one. And I, I couldn't believe it. He had that much white on him. And oh. he'd obviously had been having a bit of fun in the paddock with the mud and he was filthy dirty. And, well, I uh, can imagine. And he just walked off and I looked at him and I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, and then as uh, we uh, we 
started the breaking in process with him. Uh, he was an absolute gem of a horse to work on. He was absolute gentleman. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, of course, yet at that point, he was just run of the mill, John. I mean, he was just another horse in the system and uh, yeah. broke in well. He did everything right. He was a gentleman. He uh, mm. uh, didn't do anything wrong. And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, to what ability he had, nobody knew, of course, at the time. But, uh but he was a nice horse. He gave you a good feel when you rode him. He was well balanced. Uh, but he was a very sensible horse, and uh, and yeah. that you know is one of his greatest attributes. Now, just briefly describe him again: chestnut with a complete baldy face, but in yes. his case, the white patch extended halfway down the offside of his head. He had three high white stockings, both four legs, and I think the off hind wasn't it. He was certainly different. Oh yes, it's um, extreme. He had, you know, the 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 white on him was just highly regular for any thoroughbred. It, um, I mean, he he just about got it ex- accepted into the paint society um, <laughs> <laughs> because he had that much white on him, yeah. and uh, and it was a pest. I mean, he used to get sunburned in the summer, and um, because he sort of had the pink skin where the white was, and uh, yeah, yeah. we had to put sunscreen on him to protect him, but. Uh, but there's one thing about it that, um, you know, from our property there where we uh, were there at, in Victoria and Bellotto Road, uh, you looked down the paddock when he was out, you, you identified him very, very quickly. Oh, yeah, and it became a, a feature too with race crowds. They loved him and coming around the turn, they'd be looking for that big baldy face. He was exciting to watch. A quick look at his pedigree, Greg. His sire line cavern was a shuttle stallion who was a son of the legendary Mr Prospector. He was out of a mare by secretariat, for goodness sake. He'd been a very good two-year-old for Sheikh Mohammed, and as a stallion, I think he finished up with 11 Group 1 winners around the world, Line Cavern. Yes, he was... Uh, it was a bit of a shame because he uh, he was... He, he certainly bred some nice horses and... Uh, uh, we never saw the best of him, but um, he uh, he was a good stallion, and uh, uh, as you said, like you know, these horses they they're quite creditable, but um, unfortunately they just don't get the opportunity sometimes. And uh, mm. but fortunately he was here and at work with uh, with Apache's mother. Yeah, his mum was Tennessee Blaze. And she was by Whiskey Road, who'd been a pretty good sire. She was no champion herself, Tennessee Blaze. She won only four country races in Victoria. Now, the first of the Cats' eight Group 1 wins, eight, if you please, was the Australian Guineas of 2006, in which she was ridden by Noel Callow. Greg, you had very few problems with him during his career, but he gave you one hell of a fright in the spring of 2007 when he had a bad reaction to an inoculation for the equine virus. I think you twigged during a track gallop that something was wrong with him. Yes, it was uh, It was quite obscure what happened to him, John, because um, um, exactly as you said, he, uh, he'd been inoculated with the EI virus uh, vaccination and... Uh, he was in track work, he, uh, and at that point I used to ride a pony out and clock him out there, and he uh, he worked this morning and uh, was pulling up 
and he was sweating and he just was a horse that never sweated and um, it was as simple as that. He always did his work very easily, comfortably and I rang through to um, Johnny Baker at the time and uh, John was my foreman and um, and because uh, we were off course and uh, said, Johnny ate up last night? He said, yes, he did. He said, drink okay? He said, yeah, he did. He said, what's wrong? I said, there's something wrong with this horse. I said, he, he's sweating too much for him. Yeah. And uh, and we got him back. We uh, did a blood on him and he had quite a, uh, you know, an adverse reaction to the vaccination. And I, I think at the time we, we probably inoculated about 60 horses and he was the only one that, uh, that actually yeah. had uh, a um, reaction yeah. to it. So, it was <laughs> rare. Incredible. It was very rare, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, he got uh, over it, mate, you'd have to say, because in the autumn and winter of 2008, he put together an astonishing five group ones on the trot. Corey Brown rode him in all five. Lightning Stakes, Australia Stakes, TJ Smith, BTC Cup, Doombin 10,000. And then a year later, he won two of those for a second time, the Australia Stakes and the Doombin 10,000. And by this time, he'd become a great crowd favourite. He raced for much of his career in a white hood. And I presume you did that deliberately so that the impact of his white face wouldn't be impaired. You wouldn't have wanted a black hood or a red one. <laughs> no, exactly. It was it was very, very fitting, the, uh, the white hood. And uh, it was just symbolic of him and uh, everybody expected it and... Uh, it just blended well with him, and um, you know, I think it uh, it just set him off. But um, it uh, it worked well. But you certainly saw him coming down the track. Uh, at, uh, I think even one day there, I think one commentator called him like a, a galloping Hereford uh, <laughs> with with the white. <laughs> That's a bit unfair. <laughs> it was a little bit at the time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but no, it, uh, the, the, the White Hood worked well for him, that's for sure. Now, Greg, because of his great ability to travel comfortably, you had no hesitation in taking him to Hong Kong for the 2009 Hong Kong Sprint. He ran seventh, about three and a half lengths from the winner's Sacred Kingdom, but he wasn't himself, and you felt absolutely sick when Damien Oliver dismounted after passing the post. Lonely feeling. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to uh, you know, to do what you do with these horses, and uh, and they're just a part of your life. I mean, you you become so attached to them, and uh, and then when uh, we knew something was wrong, um, oh, it was just uh, gut wrenching to uh, to find out exactly you know what was wrong with him uh, because Damon did jump off, uh, and he was sort of out of sight for a little bit, and we thought, oh no, what has happened, mm. and. Uh, you know, my greatest fear was that, yeah, we'd gone to Hong Kong and we, we, we weren't going to return with him. And yeah, yeah. Uh, But fortunately, uh, yeah, he did return to scale and uh, he uh, he did a sesamoid in the run and, mm. uh, uh, and yeah, Damon jumped off very, very quickly, of course, once he felt something was wrong with him because he had a good affinity with him and knew him well and uh, mm. uh, did the right thing by him. But uh, fortunately, it wasn't life-threatening and uh, we got him back home. You got him back home and he was retired with the wonderful record of 19 wins and 11 placings for $4.53 million. And he's now one of the star boarders at Victoria's Living Legend Farm 
where hundreds of visitors turn up to get a selfie with the great sprinter, Apache Cat. Now, all of those Group 1 wins were exciting enough, Greg, but there was a better one coming. Pinker Pinker won two of her first six, including a couple in town. Then she had a spell. Next time back, she won a Group 2 at Caulfield and a Group 3 at Flemington. She came to Sydney. She ran fourth in the Vinery. She ran third in the Australian Oaks. And then the following prep, she won the Let's Elope. She ran second in the Stocks. Second, a secret admirer in the Epsom, and then a crack at the Cox Plate. Now, at the 800 metres, she was cluttered up, but from the school onwards, Craig Williams weaved a little bit of magic. He absolutely did. It, uh, it was a tremendous feeling to, uh, to see just sort of, uh, uh, you know, at that point, as you said, where he was, about the 800, and I'm thinking, gee, we're in a bit of trouble here. And then, uh, mm. and then things just started to unfold, and you know, you start to get a little bit more excited and excited, and just see, you know, she started to bring herself into the run, and Craig uh, just found the right spot at the right time. And then, uh, and then when she straightened up, I thought, gee, I'd be happy if she just ran in the, you know, the first three. And then, uh, and then she just kept coming and coming, and because it was just, uh, you know, a feeling to. Uh, to experience that you, you you just cannot express to anyone you you you've no. just got to f- feel it you know yourself to to be able to appreciate yeah. what it really was but uh, tremendous race tremendous effort a she race of man. a race of champions now only a few months later disaster struck the mare had raced well at her first couple of runs back from a spell she seemed to be right on track the vets one day gave her a very commonly used joint lubricant by intramuscular injection, and almost immediately she collapsed and died. And the vets were of the opinion she'd suffered an anaphylactic shock. In the simplest terms, that is a massive allergic reaction. To you and to the staff and to the ownership group, it was a massive shock. Absolutely devastating, John. It, um, you know, as you said, you know, from that point, winning the Cox Plate, which is one of the greatest moments in my life, and then to lose her that way was mm. one of the greatest disappointments in my life. And uh, mm. yeah, to experience both of those, but it it was a very, very sad thing. It uh, it was just totally out of our hands and so unexpected. And uh, to lose her that way, um, you know, for what she'd done. And, I mean, only, you know, of course, before that, you're, you're thinking, oh, gee, when this mayor does retire, you're, you're looking forward to producing youngsters and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to obtain those to train on and knowing what a great mayor she was and, you know, uh, things you were sort of looking forward to and then you just were left with such an empty feeling and, you uh, mm-hmm. And it was just so devastating for everybody and, you know, the, the staff just to see, you know, what had happened to her experience, you know, that the reaction she went through at the time, mm. dreadful, absolutely yeah. dreadful. And um, and it was hard. It was hard to even make that phone call to, um, you know, David and Carol Kirby to, oh, uh, yeah. to let, the, you know, to let them know what happened to the mayor. And, uh, yeah. but, um, but I, I actually uh, rang David's, Daughter, because um, David was an elderly gentleman, and I, you know, I didn't want to put him no. into uh, 
you know, any sort of great shock, you know, of telling him. And uh, so I, I broached the topic with her and she went and saw him and uh, yeah. and and told him about it. And the first thing David said, oh, poor Greg. He oh, said, I yeah. bet he's very upset. That speaks and volumes for the man, doesn't it? 100%. 100%. They were just lovely people and um, – you know, he, he, he felt for me, it wasn't his own personal loss, he, he felt mm. for me and, uh, you know, it was a very touching thing, you know, to hear that. But, um, mm, mm. you know, it, uh, it was, gee, it was one of the saddest moments in my uh, in my life, to you know, to lose that mare that way and, uh, you know, and it, it just, yeah, you, you'll never forget it. But anyway, no. I'm uh, pleased of... Uh, and look forward to all the good times she did give us. Just think of that Cox Plate win, mate. It'll help to ease the pain. Exactly. Greg, I'd love to have time to highlight all of the nice horses you've had in recent years, but time's beaten us. But Mick Mac was a lovely horse. He won seven. Blaze Jowski won ten races. Red Colossus won a couple of stakes wins in Adelaide and ran second in the Derby. Fire in the Night won six races, including a Group 3, the Kunji. Um, there was Lady Horse Owner, who showed a lot of ability as a two-year-old, and many, many others. I mentioned earlier that you are a fully qualified plumber, but you forsook your trade to become a breaker and later a trainer. But you've got three sons, Tim, Nick and Sam, who did follow their grandfather into the plumbing trade. <laughs> yes, it, uh, there's no shortage on uh, on plumbers in the uh, in the Arell family, John. They're uh, they're everywhere. So uh, leaky taps are, uh, are are not heard of in our camp. <laughs> I should think not. <laughs> no, but it, uh, it's nice to know the boys are in the trade, and uh, and I enjoyed the the trade itself. It was tremendous, and um, you know it. Uh, it's always nice to know what the boys are up to, and uh, but you know I'm keen on what they do, and they're very keen on what we do. So it's uh, it works well. Greg, you were a champion in the show jumping arena. You were a master yearling breaker, and a nine-time Group One winning trainer. You can rest on your laurels, mate. You've got absolutely nothing to prove. No, thank you, John. It's. Uh, it's been an absolute privilege to be able to work with horses and do something that you love doing, and uh, and the rewards are there. And um, you know, no matter what it's been, I've been very fortunate and uh, enjoyed such a, a great life with horses, and they've uh, they've looked after me. And you know, I've always said to my guys, it's one thing about horses: you look after them, and they'll look after you. And I I couldn't ask for more in my career, that's for sure. An absolute delight to have you as a special guest on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Greg Urell, thanks for your time. Thank you, John. Racing New South Wales and the Gosford Race Club got together to pay tribute to retiring trainer Albert Stapleford with a farewell luncheon at the Gosford meeting on June 22nd. The remarkable horseman turned 93 in May and relinquished his licence a few weeks later. Despite hearing and vision difficulties, Albert has been supervising the training of two horses in recent times and one of those horses, a mare called Dissenter, gave the 
veteran his 500th career training win early this year and then won again a week later. His first win as a trainer came with his very first runner. It was Renmark in a Musselbrook maiden in 1947. Who would have dreamed he'd still be training winners 76 years later? With never more than 20 horses in work, Albert has maintained a healthy strike rate and has rarely been without a good horse. His all-time favourite was Magic Albert, who won seven from 13, including a Group 2 and a Group 3, and others to win multiple races were Maitland Gold, Pecklin, Auntie Betty, Myella Prince and Hustela Quista. Perhaps he'll be best remembered for the huge betting plunge he engineered with Rutherford at Rose Hill in 1974. The chestnut opened at 330 to 1 and those in the know had a massive result on and off course. It was no surprise when Albert changed the name of his Gosford stables to Rutherford Lodge. Albert Stapleford, quietly spoken, polite and courteous, a friend to many and a master of his trade. His advice will be sought by young trainers for a long time yet.